July 1st, 2013. It's the creative process. All right, uh, lift off and the clock has started. Welcome to episode 10 of the creative process. Numero 10. Said Spanish. That's, that's Spanish. <laughs> I'm not very helpful. Yeah. Hopefully, but, though, you'll you'll translate most things into Spanish as we go through the that's, podcast. That's it. That's the entire limit of my of right. my Spanish. But I'm excited to have double digits of the creative process. Uh, we have lots of other podcasts at Lullabot uh, that that have built up over time. But this podcast, we've only got ten. Yeah, we're fairly new, and we're a monthly podcast, so it's it's exciting to get to double digits. Uh, speaking of which, I'm Jared Ponchot. Uh, I'm the creative director at Lullabot. Uh, and I'm here with Jeff Robbins. Hello. Hi, Jeff. Um, and today we're going to be talking with John Vanderslice, who is a fascinating and very creative person. So really looking forward to that. But before we dive into that, I wanted to highlight a couple things. Uh, one is that Wayne Losey, one of our former guests uh, on the podcast, Wayne was, if you listen to the episode where we talked with the toy guy, and, the and, toy guy, yep. And, and I don't mean that it was a toy guy. I mean, he was a guy <laughs> that's all about toys because he spent a career uh, at Hasbro and other great toy companies like making action figures and designing stuff. Um, and anyways, he's got a new Kickstarter project out for his uh, Modibots project, which is a, um, a do-it-yourself action figures uh, thing. I, I believe it's with sort of like 3D printed uh, action figure component do-it-yourself action figures anyways i encourage you to go look that up uh at kickstarter um i, I think if you just google uh modi bots m-o-d-i-b-o-t-s kickstarter uh you'll find that and is there anything else we need to highlight today well, we should mention it's always a good idea to mention the other lullabot podcasts we alluded to them earlier yes. but yeah but... this is this is one of many or a few at the very least. a growing growing number of yes podcasts. uh in, insert content here um, Jeff Eaton hosts that, and that's a really fun to listen to podcast that's pretty much just about content and the web. Uh, it skews towards content strategy conversations a lot, so if you're a content strategy person or fascinated with that stuff, uh, you will really enjoy that. But it's basically, if you're interested in content and the web and digital publishing in general, uh, it's a great podcast. Uh, and then we also have the Drupalize Me podcast, uh, which Addie Berry and Kyle Hoffmeyer uh, co-host and it's sort of the all things Drupal. If you want to stay up to date and learn, stay up to date with and or and or learn Drupal, uh, it's a great podcast. Um, and then we have another one that's coming soon, and that's all I'll say about coming that. very soon. Coming yes, very soon. Going to record it, but we won't announce it till there actually is a podcast. Yeah, I, I feel uh, like so. I feel like they they know they've got a name for it now. They're already planning out the first episode. They've, they've got a theme song. Yeah, they've which got a theme song for so. the Lullabot podcast. A very important thing, apparently. It's a it's a starting point in the creative <laughs> process for for Lullabot podcast. It is. It is, and yeah. it's a it's a little creative outlet for me. I get right. to do silly things that. Yeah. yeah, are very silly. Um, let's talk about John Vanderslice. Yeah, a fascinating guy. He's he's a musician. He's got a, a brand new album out, or I say brand new. It's pretty recent, um, Dagger Beach. But he's also an engineer. Uh, he's produced albums. He, I mean, this is a guy who's toured with well, he, you know, he runs, lots of he runs bands. a recording studio called Tiny Tiny, Tiny Telephone, Telephone yes. which is actually. 
technically two studios in in San Francisco. They're next door to each other, uh, and they're opening a third studio in Oakland. He's been running these studios for I want to say about sixteen years. Um, he also the he recently he he was on Barsook Records, which is a, a very reputable record label for for a while. Uh, then left there um, and was on another label. Just left that label um, and uh, did a Kickstarter to help put out his his latest album, um, uh, Dagger Beach. And he it, what do they call it? A an extra goal, a bump goal, a, a stretch goal. That's what they call it. A Kickstarter uh, that that. Uh, uh, that he achieved, and he he as a as a thank you, um, or as a stretch goal thank you, um, c- recorded uh, David Bowie's Diamond Dogs album as a cover. So he he rec- like a, and he, covered an entire album. he covered an entire yes. album. <laughs> but he he actually even rewrote he rewrote some of the lyrics, put new chord progressions into parts of it. It was like sort of a really ambitious co- cover of an entire album. Yep, and then yeah. put both of them out on vinyl, on super heavy. What did he say? Two hundred gram vinyl, um, like like really high quality vinyl. If you're a vinyl geek, this is good stuff. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, John, but we could go on for hours, but why don't we actually talk with him? Uh, as we said, he's a lot of things. So uh, let's talk with him. John, thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, it's my pleasure. You know, sometimes that you'll be like doing something, speaking or meeting with a group of people or being introduced on a podcast and someone will kind of summarize who you are and you'll think, hmm, that doesn't sound like me. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, hopefully that doesn't mean that I just completely mischaracterized you. No, you know, we try and simplify your, your whole life down to like a sentence or no. two. Well, it's just like that's like my my mom's version of me. Do you know what I mean? It's right. so upgraded that I I just think that all this stuff happens in such slow motion that it doesn't really feel like, um, it just it feels like like the you know the it feels like the obituary version of me. Do you know what I mean? Because <laughs> I I, th- I, th- I think that, that like I'm probably you know this is the problem, and you guys ha- I, I'm sure have this too. We run in circles where everyone's creative everyone is motivated and everyone's got a lot of stuff going on and you don't really feel any different or any more interesting than your friends and Mm -hmm. certainly I don't and so I don't often feel very special so thanks for making me feel special is really what I'm trying to say (laughs) Um, so I I, I don't I, I think that the main thing honestly the main thing was that I had a mom who encouraged me to be, to be creative. I, I really think that when it comes down to it, when I look at groups of my friends and peers and, and creative people in the studio, um, I was encouraged from a very young age where I lived in, a, in an extremely uncreative environment. I grew up in rural Florida. You know, I don't even rem- remember music playing in the house. You know, I don't – we were – not stupid people, but we weren't talking about like, you know, Rothko and Prokofiev. You know right. what I mean? It, it wasn't... was a college town, though, right? You're from Gainesville. Yeah, but we were as connected to the college part of Gainesville as, you know, I am. As, you know, connected right. to like Stanford here. You know what okay. I mean? It's like, so we, you know, we, the university was technically in town, but 
we were not university folk. <laughs> it's just uh-huh. that my mom was actually the first person in the family that ever went to college. So that, you know, and my dad, interestingly, turned down a full scholarship to to UPenn. So, um, you know, it's not like we were just morons because there's way probably, you know, my family was not abusive. They were, they just, it's just, you know, mi- you know, rural south it's mm-hmm. just not the thing we, hey could could my you know my grandma grew tomatoes and made unbelievably great food and biscuits so you know it wasn't i, I didn't right. have a shabby childhood you know what i mean mm-hmm. i i was a barefoot kid that was provided with a lot of you know free free <laughs> free range space you know what i mean which is like what a kid kid doesn't want to be stuck in front of a stereo by his parents telling him how important you know Bach is and Bach <laughs> you know, like chordal <laughs> movement is, do you know what I mean? It's like, so I, I'm not weeping at all, but I would say that I think my mom recognized that, you know, there was a wider world out there and that she was extremely um, sympathetic to any creative endeavor that I started on. So like when I said one day, I, I think I'd like to take piano lessons, she <clears throat> made it happen. And when I wanted to record, she you know, got me a Tascam four track. So I, I th- honestly think it comes down to like having one parent that is just like such a fan of you being creative because, you you know, honestly, people get fans later on in their life. But when you're 12, you don't have any fans. You're a long way away from getting a fan. And without a fan, you're not going to be that creative. You know what I mean? Hmm. It's, it's, it's going to be a long slog. And my mom was like my first fan. And she was like kind of I don't know. She was like for a forever fan. You know what I mean, like right. a hardcore fan. And and now that you you run a studio, and even at least from what I gather, you even you help, sort of help produce work that happens in your studio. Do do you find yourself sort of tr- trying to play that fan parent role for for artists, or how, what are the things that you do to kind of nurture creativity in your studio? Well, the the thing that I see, and, and I'm sure you guys see this too, that the, the, the the problem I see in creativity is that people have these like internalized negative voices that make them – I mean honestly, this is one of the gripes I have with computer recording. Like I, people have these internalized like n- you know, just like negative no voices that are at every turn of the creative process, even when they shouldn't even be – making qualitative assessments about what they're doing. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's like, for instance, it's so early in recording a song that they're, they're, they're having pointless discussions mm-hmm. within the band or with themselves about what they're doing. Um, because creativity, cre- creativity has to be like, has to be chaotic and there has to be a period where it is judgment free because honestly, like you don't know where it's heading. You don't know where this the song is going. Like the song sometimes the stuff that makes you cringe in the earliest parts of a, like a song's development is means that you're actually on this new and kind of brave road because you're not <clears throat> kind of acclimated to what the song's doing yet. And so some, some you really need to calm down with like the judgment. And I can't I mean every day we see artists like basically edit themselves in an extremely self-conscious and anti-creative way because of these inter- internalized voices. I mean, I don't know if it's their parents. I don't know if they just don't have 
the confidence. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, but there's a reason why a singer wants to like obsessively edit and tune their voice. And I don't think it's because, because I think if you're a child, you just shout. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, I just think you holler and yelp. But I think if you're, you've, if you've been told by teachers and like scolding parents that you're out of key or that's not the way that you sing or that's not the way you play. I mean, that's why punk and, and the idea of, of like outsider music is so important because there, you know, the idea of being in tune is you, we could talk, we could do t- a 10 hour podcast on the idea of being in tune. Like, is that important in music? And for instance, is classical music in tune? Like, I mean, there's a lot of classical music that's not tempered. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, I, I don't know. These are interesting things. But I honestly think that my mom gave me a not an unreasonable self-confidence, but a self-confidence which I often see as being a – it's a very problematic um, part of, of, of a band's like creative life, Wh- whether they have the confidence to be brave in the studio – and 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 that's a big issue. So, do you find that bands coming to a studio when when they have like a rock star producer involved that, that it becomes actually more problematic, or is it? I'm not asking asking the question well, but th- this sense of like needing to impress when you're in the studio. Well, I I would say this. I, I would say that there's a, like a connected problem to that, and that that is that when you get anything into a committee. Even if there's smart people involved, it gets less interesting. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that the, the hope with art, which is unlike programming or, you know, building, a, 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 you know, an electric car or something, that the, the, you want strange, unknowable qualities to exist in art. You, you want it to be somewhat, you know, you want it to straddle the, 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 the lines between, like, new and old. So you have, like old language, old signifiers. So you're like, oh, I get it. Okay, so this is some kind of of a bridge, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, you could take the, like, the Radiohead song, We Suck Young Blood, which ostensibly is like a, a, it's built like a pop song. But when you really, really put it under a microscope, it's a completely bizarre <laughs> artifact of, 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 of some pretty weird creative people, you know? And so I, I think that there would be a million ways to kind of iron out a Radiohead song, right? For instance, <laughs> and so the problem with a producer, most producers are really stupid people. And I say this as as a producer, and it's like, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I mean, honestly, it's like basically what I try to do when I produce, and and I'm I, honestly, I'm probably unnecessary on most records. I mean, I I think that mostly I'm kind of like a partner with the engineer. I'm a I'm an I'm an engineer who is just less comfortable and less skilled than the engineers I work with, but I'm more apt to be able to embolden the artist to be stranger and more intuitive. So I think that on, on certain levels, I can be very valuable in that in that way. But most producers that we see in the studio, and I, I would say this is the, you know, the curse of the consultant, you're being paid to have opinions. Sometimes you, you really shouldn't have opinions. Sometimes you should just let things roll and we see producers that are often you know they they have to um be involved in every decision because they're they're collecting a paycheck and so they there's a there's a inherent guilt there i guess and mm-hmm. so 
they can they can often slow things down and they can often because you're adding another person to the committee you know right. then you're you're making songs like so a producer producer might say well the ending of this song is a little ungainly i don't understand what's happening but hey that might be like one of the most interesting things about the song is that the band does not end the song you know what i mean like <laughs> i mean you know sometimes you're you're better off honestly with some monstrosity in art than perfection you know and your latest album uh dagger beach you did that one yourself without a label is that correct i did i i um i ended up leaving dead oceans because it felt like a very safe and very wonderful home that i needed to like i needed to like run away you know i mm-hmm. i needed to be in a more dangerous place and i needed to not turn in the a record to anyone i needed it to be riskier and i needed the process to feel more lonely and I'll, I'll, honestly i needed the process to feel like it did when i first started making records and you know they i was very lucky that they were um okay with that because mm-hmm. you know they had invested in me and they had done a great job with my two record i put out two records with them um, Romanian names and White Wilderness, and and I before that I'd had a great run on Barsook, so I had really gotten the the. It was a great world that I was in, but I knew that it was a, very important for me to be um, vulnerable again, and also I knew that it was very important for me not to have any filters between the people that like my music and and me, and so that all of that stuff has made me feel better about making records. What impact did that have in the actual process of making the record? I assume that you did this in your own studio at Tiny Telephone. I did. And probably produced it yourself as well? Well, I produced it with Ian Polici, but there was a lot of... And Ian is fantastic. Ian actually recorded and produced both records that I put out at the same time, the Diamond Dogs cover and Dagger Beach. But there were there's a lot of really, really smart and very savvy opinionated people that recorded on the record and i honestly think that they pushed me a lot further than than i i would have rob shelton the keyboard player and jamie the bass player i think it was like you know the best case scenario which is like creative opinionated people that are not invested in the art because they're they have so much stuff going on themselves mm-hmm. you know what i mean um and so yeah that was the, the difference for me was that I, I honestly I think that it's very it's a very subtle um editing shift when you're turning in the record to again to a committee. Dead Ocean Secretly, Secretly Canadian Jag Jaguar, they're a, a a very, very savvy, smart group of people. And I think that you know, you turn in a record to essentially like an editing committee, as it should be. You know, I think that mm-hmm. that's one of the strengths of, of labels is that they will push back if they feel that the sequencing isn't right or there's stuff that should be switched out um you know there was a lot of other music recorded at the same time that i decided to keep off the record that maybe they would have thought to put on the record and vice versa Mm -hmm. Um, but i knew that because i was going to sequence and really kind of usher this record through the entire process including you know 
like printing a vinyl on 200 gram, like labels won't really do that because it's prohibitively expensive. And it was important for me to, to be able to control things like um, the, the quality of the vinyl. And, you know, I don't, I don't blame labels for not being obsessed about stuff like that. It, when I think, I don't think that I made them any money. I think that most bands don't make labels <laughs> any money. And so bands can't really be picky about how heavy their vinyl is. It's, it's kind of ridiculous. But I, I would really rather do it in a much smaller scale and do it exactly how I wanted to do it. And mm-hmm. there were times that I really missed having Dead Oceans just as friends, just as like, you know, you, it's a little bit lonely putting out a record on your own. You know what I mean? Like, but you know, in the end, I was able to, for instance, change the idea of like a download code. Like I, I don't have like a password protected download code. It's just, you know, a static URL that has a bunch of records on it. Mm-hmm. And I also, under fair use, encourage and, and provide, you know, let people, um, you know, share that with their friends. I really don't care if they do. And I also was very happy to put up both my records with with six resolutions because you know you buy an album and you get a download code first off it's password protected which i think is really offensive because it's like you know you're typing in this like 24 you know like like you know digit key to get a 196 you know mp3 zip file it's just it's just dumb and and also it's a one time use of download code which doesn't really suit how people listen to music now and Mm -hmm. so I I wanted to fix all that stuff and I wanted to like I I wanted to provide I don't know like a a safe haven people are going to BitTorrent if if people want to steal your stuff they're going to BitTorrent it's not hard it's up on BitTorrent like before the record came out so like I'm I'm trying to be adult about stuff like that and and realizing that I want to control the quality of the record more than anything else so the process with this, you said you wanted to feel a lot more vulnerable. Did you find the loneliness of it creating an environment where you had to sort of create your own constraints because there weren't there weren't constraints from outsiders at all? Did that looseness make it hard to sort of move forward in the album, or or was that freeing? I think it was freeing, and I I think that I think that when you can take full responsibility for what you do, I just I think you're you're happier. Like I don't, for instance, because I can control, you know, I'm the sole owner of tiny telephone and I don't, I think that that job would be so much more stressful if I had partners because I would worry about them. I would worry about debt obligations and long-term like fiscal irresponsibility slash responsibility of my, you know, my, my own temperament is I'm pretty lousy with money and I really don't care about money. And so I would feel really, guilty about all that stuff and because it's like a unilateral um process i find it pretty easy to run the stu- run the business you know like relatively easy and same with putting out a record like i didn't have any w- when this record went to press i had no doubt about the record like how i felt about it and w- at that point you kind of in some ways you just stop reflecting on how the record will be received because you you really think you know what this was i i I recorded this record for over a year and this was exactly what i wanted the record to be in the sequence that i wanted and i and i um parsed the songs in 
the way that I wanted uh, the songs to be presented. And at that point, you just completely let go. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've, I've had some, I, you know, I still put on older records of mine where I, I, I feel like I made mistakes, you know. And I think that, so in, in a way, it, the, the loneliness is, uh, you know, you, you're also set free in some way. Because it, it, you, I am just concerned about myself. I like that people like the record. That means a lot to me, but I didn't, it's not, I'm not dependent on that. Mm-hmm. Are, there, are there any issues with drive? Like, um, I find that lots of times when I'm the only one to, uh, when I'm only beholden to myself, I go like, ah, nobody's going to notice if I don't get this done quite as quickly. I mean, I guess different people have different kinds of drive, but like, did you feel an obligation to your fans or to you, yourself? I mean, where do where do, when you're working so individually like that, where where does that do you feel like that drive comes from? Well, I would say it's that's a very interesting question. I would say that I really haven't <clears throat> I've been recording since I was a, a kid, so I, I really it's just it's part of my like DNA now. So I'm the weird thing is that after I finished the record, I kept recording and I I did. Um, I added some songs to the rarities. I recorded a song for a friend. I recorded a song for um, my girlfriend. I recorded a song for the backers only. I mean, I kind of just kept going. I would say that. I would say there's two things there. One is that you do have a responsibility. There's, you know, this was my ninth album, so it is released in a context of a body of work, and so you. There's a lot of really smart people that were that were collaborating with me on those other records. So there is a I do feel that there's like a benchmark of what has to be in place for it to be released. And so that's one and then two I think that internally at the studio it's very very competitive. You know, all all of the people that play on the record, they have their own projects and their own albums coming out which can be very very good. And so it makes you paranoid in that way where <laughs> you feel that like people are like passing you up or they're learning things that you don't know about or they're just doing exceptionally good work. And then there is the fierce competition of just like in the international, you know, music scene where you're listening to tons of music from everywhere and it's overwhelmingly good. So, I mean, I think that most of the day I'm listening and referencing other records. So I think that that's enough to keep you really paranoid. And, <laughs> and you know, and, and also I, I think that, that like in the context of, you know, I'm lucky to be doing what I'm doing, but I also think that if it's not interesting, I don't think there's any reason why people would stay with me. You know, and I don't I don't want to I I earn those fans the hard way, man. It's like people congratulated me about the Kickstarter stuff, which I which was great. I wasn't I didn't say this to anyone, but what I thought in my mind was, "Hey man, like I know a lot of those names." Mm-hmm. You know, I remember I'd sign a record to some of these people in 2001. So it's, you know what I mean? Like, like I mean, I'm not I'm just I'm this is anti-bragging. What I'm saying is like, "Hey, I earn those people the hard way, door to door." slogging you know really good bands around the country and europe and you know and like playing for them and i don't man i i would do it again in two seconds but it wasn't it wasn't a random you know 
occurrence. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And I, and I, and so I don't want to lose those people. I, I really don't, man. That the, the the they they funded in many ways. These fans have funded the studio, and they've definitely funded me making very committed, expensive records. We've talked with a number of of creatives on the show about the idea of of inspiration versus influence, and the idea being sort of that a painter uh, may be inspired by architecture, but would be influenced by looking at the work of another painter. It was interesting to me that when you were talking about drive and where it come from, comes from, it seemed like that community of, of influence around you is a big sort of motivator for your work. I'm curious sort of w- how much inspiration, you know, plays itself out in your creative process of either making an album or helping another band record an album and those kinds of things. Well, that's a very interesting question. I mean, I think that, you know, this is, I, I honestly think this is the biggest problem in art. It's the biggest problem I've had is finding, so I used to really devalue this momentary burst of like, of inspired thought, right? I would, I would just assume, so let's, let's say I'm sitting at my desk and I have like a very rudimentary recording rig in my basement. It's like a an old MM1200 tape machine and like one Great River mic pre and a purple audio compressor. Very, very simple. But it does take me, you know, a little bit of time to kind of spark it up, you know. Mm-hmm. So I would be sitting at my desk and I would be doing work or listening to music and then I would have this like flash of like, okay, I have a real idea for a song. And in the old days, I would... I, I guess I would take it for granted or I would just maybe jot notes down and continue what I was doing. But I began to quickly realize that the more dismissive I was of those flashes, like the worse off I was going to be because I really do feel that in those, it's in those moments um, where there's some kind of like information that you're transmitting to yourself, like naturally, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, I, I really, I've began to, I, I really think that like, that's it. You know what I mean? And you can, yes, you can, pa- you can package it and you can definitely um, craft around it. But without that initial burst of almost like unconscious and very like natural creativity, it's extremely different, di- difficult to, to like produce interesting stuff that Mm -hmm. that has that will connect with people and i think that you know i don't need to know what that means i don't i don't think that this is an external thing and nor do i think it's like that i'm tapping into the collective unconscious and that's why this is valuable i just honestly think that there's a there's an intuitive kind of subterranean level to your thinking that's just more interesting than the surface level stuff it's it's murky and it's unknowable and it's it's also it's it's more of like a puzzle to for for people to figure out and and it's covert you know and so i just began to just immediately if that happens i like shut down everything and try to like i i try to demarcate it you know i try to mm-hmm. like find out what it is and i i do think that in that process it's become very important for me to start embracing first takes to embrace um, ideas that are that don't seem to be necessarily connected or logical, and 
I just find myself being more interested in these ideas. Now, they definitely have to be translated and they definitely have to be, hey, sometimes I'll come up with an idea, a melodic idea or a lyrical idea, and then six months later, the song will be done. It's not like it just creates mm-hmm. itself. But I think that that initial burst of like inspired thought, I, I just think it's worth like a thousand dollars. You know, I, I mean, <laughs> I, I really do. Have you, know? you found patterns for when those happen for you or what are the things that bring those about or is it oh ca- caffeine and and like early morning for sure <laughs> i mean it really for me yeah, it's like uh-huh. it'll it could happen at night for sure but i i think that it's it's often i've written so many songs before noon you know it's 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 really a morning thing my my and, and maybe it's like that post dream scape thing and i'm just kind of <clears throat> i don't know i'm, I'm just reawakening you know, ways of thinking in my, my brain. And I, 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 it's really connected to the morning for me. Hmm. And have you found ways to foster that for other artists that are working in your studio or that you're working with? Do, or? do you make them come in in the morning and caffeinate them heavily? <laughs> yeah. I do. Well, actually, you know, the on, honestly, the only thing I can do, which I do think is very, very valuable. The only thing I can do is to push back on whatever garbage they have in their head, those voices, which is, it's, you would not believe, I mean, I'm just, I tell this to people and I'm just saying, you, you would not believe if you watch, you could, you could have the punkiest, most um, drugged out, weirdest, and most antisocial, uh, fucked up band in the world. They'd come into the studio, they'd, if they were recording on Pro Tools, and you got this big old cinema screen monitor up, they would be editing themselves like they were scared, nervous children who were afraid of being called out by their elders. It is, <laughs> it is unbelievable the timidity that you see in the recording studio. And it's, that's why I don't, like for me, the idea of like punk or like hard music, or I don't buy any of it. I, you know what I mean? Because I see like, I see, you know, we we had a solo pan flute guy in there that was weirder and more adventurous than like a lot of these like crazy like weird math rock bands that we get. You know what I mean? It's just like it's just it's an illusion. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like there's I, I don't and you know it's funny because you have like metal and and like death metal and all this stuff has migrated over to oh, Pro yeah. Tools mm-hmm. and these these are the most gridded out and this is just like the most processed garbage music. And it's like, you know, there's the the spirit of these bands. It's so antithetical to the spirit of these bands because these bands can be unbelievably great, wonderful. But there is this override, and this is not all the bands, but, you know, it's Mm got to be 90% of these bands. And the process is so, it's so... um, corrosive to their to the initial spirit of the band do you know what i mean and like Mm -hmm. so the one thing i can do is free up people where i i encourage first takes i encourage fast recording i mean i've jokingly trademarked the phrase sloppy hi-fi i think that's the most interesting way to record where you have this like great and wonderfully hi-fi signal chain but you record like you're bob dylan in 1964 and you've got you've got a date. You know what I mean? Right. You're like, let's roll, dudes. Let's go. You know, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, he, they'd be pressing tape when Al Cooper was like looking at chord sheets. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's like, so, yeah, 
And Tiny Telephone is is a is a fully analog studio, right? It is, but we get you know we we have, you know, we enforce analog recording. I I am so hostile to to digital recording. People think that I'm like anti digital, and I, I they don't realize <laughs> that I'm actually like capping. Like I've been told to dial it back because it's it's just it 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 is. I don't know why. Maybe I'm just a very um. I don't know, like I can't let go. I just get latched onto ideas and it may not be healthy and it may not even be accurate, but I just despise computer recording. And what I really despise about it is not the it's the it's the editing it's the timidity factor of what it does. Hey, if bands are recording on a computer and they're deer hoof, then you're awesome. I love you and you can you're exempt from this. But that's one percent of bands that record themselves on a computer. Most bands are airbrushing themselves. They're the most, they're, they're so unhappy with their own physical appearance. Well, it's, like, interesting. it's interesting how the tools influence uh, the process. And, and, and these tools tend to, you know, oh, it's so easy to edit things that we will spend 75% of the recording process editing. Yeah, because uh, it's so easy. Well, the, the amazing thing is that the dirty secret of recording studios, and this is why recording studios will not go on record with this kind of anti, anti-digital diatribe, which has prob- probably been somewhat unprofitable for me. Because when bands go down the editing black hole, they start adding time. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing that takes longer than four men definitely going to be four men in a room (laughs) right this is a male thing too it's like this is like this is like seriously it's like like it's polishing a car Mm -hmm. it's just more polish more polish super shiny shiny yeah or it's airbrushing pornography i mean i honestly see it like that that it's like (laughs) like like sex is like you know sex doesn't need to be you know it doesn't need to be controlled in that way. Do you know what I mean? But it's no. very male to be like, okay, now you... Now let's improve it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you tell him what, you know. I can honestly say this is the first time this podcast has ever gone here. <laughs> well, it's high time. It's high time. So, and I, I do think that, um, I, I think I've never seen a room full of people turn into bigger pussies. Than when they're editing a drum set. It, it is first off. This is the thing: is that what what I what, so I enforce digital recording. We, I tell people they are insane if they don't stay analog and they don't mix to a half inch tape. That's what I. That's I, I tell people you shouldn't. You know, you should go. So there's a you know a thousand Pro Tools studios who have tomorrow open in San Francisco. Like don't come here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you're wasting your time and your money because we don't. We're, our system is we are built to provide something that, that very, very few people on the West Coast are providing. So you have to like work within the system. And if that's, you know, you don't go to like uh, an organic restaurant and ask for like, you know, Captain Crunch or whatever for, for breakfast. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like it's pointless. Um, so the thing is that we even within that those parameters, there are bands that get scared they get terrified. Singers mm. get weird. They want to. They, they're they're f- very afraid about not comping vocals. When I mean, honestly, when you step back and what you want to say to the, to people who are editing, often it's like the problem is never what they think it is. You know <laughs> mm-hmm. what? 
what you want to say is like, why don't you write weirder lyrics? Like, why don't you sing weirder, not more in key, but more fucked up? You know what I mean? <laughs> and to the to the drummer that's like late, you know, to the drummer that 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 his his like feel is a little off. You think that like putting that on a grid is going to sound good? It's like the <laughs> only thing that's cool about your band is your drummer's weird. You know what I mean? It's like so often they're they're taking out what's yeah. interesting about you know you look at painting you can't you know like often you have very unusual effects from like you know Cezanne is like a poor you know like draftsman or whatever you know you look at these these early drawings of his and they're just bizarre you know what i mean like they don't make sense or you look at like i mean imagine saying that like a character in like you know paul clay's twittering machine like oh well that a bird doesn't look like that and it's like well yes you're right that's the whole point is that it's completely bizarre and so the editing machine the great editing machine is just an averaging machine i mean that's what bands are looking to do right Mm -hmm. like they're 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 being crushed by the weight of like rock and roll and the the nervousness of that right the the anxiety of whatever the past is it's is making them you know run their music through like an a great averaging machine which is destroying the only thing that's interesting listen i've never ever been in the in the studio in 16 years and watched someone do an edit that wasn't blowing up their music like completely destroying them you know like <laughs> like in other words that wasn't like an edit where they're like hey let's let's invert this this like pre-chorus and then let's put the you know what i mean where they're like exploding their form i've never once in 16 years watched someone do an edit and thought wow that was really a good idea Hmm. you might bands must be freaked out though i mean you've got bands who are coming in who'd never recorded to tape before i'm sure these days right all the time but i I think i think of my so my nine-year-old son um, has never lived in a world where there weren't cell phones around. The mm-hmm. idea of him going, he gets freaked out. We went, we went up into the Berkshires a couple of weeks ago uh, out in western Massachusetts, and, and where we were staying, there was no cell phone coverage, and he was, like, visibly nervous. Like, <laughs> what, what if something goes wrong? How will we call someone? And, and I feel like that there's a, there's a similar uh, situation. It's like, well, what if I sing out of key? What will we do? Yeah, and and mm-hmm. you know maybe the, you know maybe I mean I I I mean I think that the 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 takeaway here is that like when you're in the studio and you're paying ten thousand dollars to make a record, like our responsibility is to help you make a better record, and like we firmly believe that that editing is making you make a a worse record, and the thing is that I. I understand actually your son in some ways that I, I really like you guys know this that I'm like a tech freak like I, I, I'm very unusual in this kind of anti-digital you know I have an anti-digital you know rant in music specifically but in every other um, area I, I get it you know what I mean and I, I just think that there is something about the performance when you're doing performance based music I think that there's something so valuable um, in continuity and so valuable in the commitment of a performance that it just cannot be ignored. Um, but, you know, and, and maybe like, did, you know, do you explain to your son the flip side of that of like, hey, you know, you actually, your mind is going to go different places now, you know, because I, you're not I, online, I, you know? I try, I try, but 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, I come, I come from the same thing. I mean, I started out actually, um, I, you know, my first instrument was piano, and then and then I got a synthesizer probably in 1982, something like that. And you know, I got a Juno 60. This was before MIDI, yeah. um, and and then I got a drum machine, and I could not make music with those things. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't until I picked up a guitar and, and stripped it down and, and, and thought about it less, uh, um, you know, and, and was less concerned with the technological aspect of it w- w- that I was able to really write songs. Yeah, yeah. And like, I mean, that, you know, that makes sense to me. And, and you know, I, I don't want to get too, like, bogged down with the digital stuff, but I, I do like people always ask me what is what are the main problems that you see in the studio, and it's not just the digital thing. It's it's bands not being able to commit to um, to a bold vision for their own art because of external um, voices and and these like weird internalized doubts. Once I was on a, a tape-op panel with John Bryan and he said something that really affected me. He, he said that if you want to go weird, if you want to bring in something odd into your music, you have to do it a hundred times broader and louder and stranger than you initially think. And the reason is, is that by the time that you record something and then mix it into the fabric of the music, it's, it becomes miniaturized. You know what I mean? Like when you're at the time that you're recording something, it's like a trick because you're, you're listening to it. You're, that's the only thing you're focusing on. Let's say, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Is this like backwards harmonium, you know, put through a flanger or something, you know, it's, <laughs> it seems like, uh, Oh my God, no one's ever done this before. And it's just like, Oh really? That's not <laughs> true. First off. <laughs> and like, but, and so he, he said like, and then he went through like, hey, why not put like ride symbols on a hi-hat? Why not do this and this? And he, he kind of presented these like five bizarre scenarios that were just like, oh my God, like most bands, if you were to say this to them, that you, you might as well say, let's like, you know, let's, let's have like, let's, you know, tape down like glad bags in the, in the studio and then have like sex on you know, on these, <laughs> you know what I mean? Let's do like, I understand really, that, was really... a, that was a Brian Wilson technique. He used yeah. <laughs> I mean, you seriously, like you, you would not believe how conservative musicians are. It, it's, it's really, it's an unknown untold story and it is forever miserably present. And I, and, and, and I, again, I'm getting back to like bands that you think are like really out there. They're unbelievably conservative in the studio. So that's the main thing that we that we really see and that we fight against. Fascinating. Yeah. It's funny because I keep thinking about earlier you mentioned that you're horrible with finance. But but uh, I remember Jeff telling me recently that you, you taught a class at Max FunCon called uh, like monetizing your creative skills or something like that. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm curious about how somebody who feels like they're horrible at finance winds up teaching classes at conferences on monetizing creative skills. I know. It seems really disingenuous. I did disclaim <laughs> at the beginning of the class, I believe, d- didn't I, Jeff, where I, I, I think I, I was very um, well, honest. I think that there's that I a difference. Be- I, I think there's a difference between being bad at finance and 
de well devaluing has the wrong meaning, but but uh, not valuing money like yeah. people right. that are conventionally good at finance. Like there there be like I I I think you can be good at finance enough to know how little money you might need. Um, and I think John, you've you've done a pretty good job with that. I mean, you've got you're opening a third studio now. Uh, you know, you're still playing music and and uh, and involved in making music for a living, which is uh, a lot more than most people yeah well, can say they've done for as long as you have. Well, the the odd thing too is that things have. I'm making more money off of. I, I think honestly, this year that that me playing and touring and putting out this record will be subsidizing the new studio. Like I, I think that, that, that I'm making more money than the studio is right now and that I'm just <laughs> plowing that wow. money back into the studio, which is, and I, I think that my problem has been that I just really, I, I mean, I, I'm a really split personality because I don't care about money. If I have $10 in my wallet, I'm very cheap and very frugal in many ways. I, I mean, I'm, and I'm sure many people listening this are the same way. If I'm out and I'm like, let's say I'm in walking by four barrel and I'm like, well, you know what? I would love a $4 latte, but there's no way that I can ever allow myself to do that. I'm going to go home to my AeroPress and I'm going to make a nice, you know, good working class coffee and save $3. And that's how my brain works. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to like a $200,000 Neve console, I just can't <laughs> stop myself. <laughs> and it's like the, if you go large, I, I, somehow it's, if it's, if it's really meaningful and it's connected to, um, I don't know, to this wonderful creative history. I mean, I, I was born to own a recording studio. I was born to hang out with engineers. I I love musicians. I love engineers and I really adore the control room. Like there's nothing more fun for me than hanging out with like creative people in a control room. To me that's like I, I want everyone to understand how pleasant of an environment that is and how nurturing and how amazing it is. And so I I that's important for me to spread that around and to make it more, um, I don't know, available. I mean, our goal with the Oakland studios, we're trying to open a $300 a day room with a Neve 8068, which would be unprecedented in this country. It just, that, that's, you know, you'd be going back and, you know, like real dollars to like the, I don't know. Actually you would never go. Studios were so expensive in the, in the seventies that it, this would just, would be, it would not have existed at any point in time, regardless of <laughs> like what currency your <laughs> your calculator you're working. I, I believe with. the currency back then was cocaine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and <laughs> so I mean, I and From what I really I understand. and I do think that that's that that's really important to provide low cost. I mean, the thing is that me complaining about digital, at least I'm actually providing. At least I'm doing something about it. You know what I mean? Like I'm I'm actually providing low cost options for recording on on good analog equipment. You know, that's what I think. It even fuels me being even more annoying about it. Actually, <laughs> so did did the uh, the low cost analog or just like sort of niching yourself into analog? Some some people would would look at that and think, well, that's like a tiny tiny niche, but maybe that's like a great business idea. 
it sounds like for you, this was just sort of an evolution of who you are and what the way you liked to do things. Has it been helpful as a, you know, turning a creative endeavor into a business and all that? Well, I, I, I mean, I, I think flying a flag, I've said this like a couple of times, like I think that flying a flag is is the only way to go in anything that you do in life. I think that it's almost arbitrary. As long as you believe in it and and it's it's uh true to who you are, any time that you can differentiate yourself in any way in the marketplace. It's like I mean, how many recording studios are in San Francisco? I mean, I'm I've got to guess that in the Bay Area there's a thousand studios. And I just can't imagine competing with them and I also can't imagine having the same the same aesthetic um valuations as as they they have do you know what I mean like mm-hmm. there has to be something that you're interested in that's unusual and I mean there's studios in LA that that uh, specialize in like monophonic and polyphonic synthesizers and I guess genius you know what I mean like mm-hmm. you you go there and they have like and ARP 2600 and modular Moogs, they have all these like wonderful, interesting things that you're never going to find anywhere and they know how to keep them up and that's what they do. And so I think that it does have, I've told studios often ask me because we are very busy and I, I don't think that most studios, I think most studios are just giving away time. And I think that a lot of the studios that we're competing against in the Bay area, they're just trust fund studios. And there's, I, I'm an econ major. I can, I can see a build out and, and it doesn't take a genius. You can just use a calculator and realize, like, oh, my God, these guys would have to be sold out until, like, you know, 2050 to recoup their, like, you know, their capital costs. It's like it doesn't make sense. You know what I mean? And then you just need to ask who their parents work for. And then you're like, okay, I understand. So, and this is very, very common where, like, it. first off, running a studio is not inherently very fun. <laughs> It's like, I mean, that's why a lot of these dudes just just jump jump off the train after five five years, and they're usually done. It's like it's like it probably as interesting as like running a corner store or a dry cleaning place. Like there is a community aspect to it, but there's also like a you're just running a business. You know what I mean? It's like you're dealing with the city, you're dealing with landlords, you're dealing with um, permits, you're dealing with clients who are problematic at times and it's seven days a week so I, I just find that most people just get for me it's like I am it's beyond I mean I would have been financially it been much smarter for me to open a, a convenience store in you know <laughs> the Noe Valley and you know what I mean if I would have done that 16 years ago I would like own a Victorian <laughs> you know what I mean like <laughs> I mean, seriously <laughs> If you were leaning just on your economics degree. Yeah, if I was selling like lottery tickets and like, you know what I mean? And like, it's just, come on, it's like a really tough sector to make money in. But, um, but I, so I tell other studios this, like, even if I didn't believe in analog recording, I would still seriously lie about it. I would just like, I would, (laughs) I would say the same propaganda because again, you have to fly a flag. There has to be, what could be so interesting about your studio? If you don't have something that you you specialize, if you're competing with that, I mean, listen, bands do this so well. You think about your favorite bands. They're so unusual. They're so weird. And they're like, they're anomalies, you know? And, and I just, 
I love that about music, but I also think that businesses have to run that way too, or, or there's just, there's too much pure competition. And in the studio world, you don't even have competition. You have something way worse than that. You have motivated actors who are willing to lose millions of dollars to say that they're studio owners, which to me, I can't, I can't think of anything less sexy than like owning a studio that loses money. To me, it just seems like <laughs> misery. You know what I mean? Like... <laughs> So, so if we needed to, if we needed to sort of uh, bring it back to the center of of this, uh, you've been doing creative work in a variety, you know, like, like uh, I don't curating, sort of creating an environment for creative work in your studio. Obviously, you know, you've been recording and writing songs and all that kind of stuff. Do you feel like you have advice for generally creative people? I mean, if you sat down with um, an, an artist or a computer programmer or you know someone in in another realm what do you, what do you do you feel like you've got bits of information to share with them well i would just say like develop a relationship with editors that can also respect you, what's unusual about your own thinking and i think that that's really really important where you're you're you have people above you that are willing to help you filter out your garbage ideas of which you will have many and that's fine it's great but that which really respect what's valuable and what's unique about you and so they have to understand the context that you ex- they have to understand what your your end re- goal is and also like where you're coming from and where you want to go like they have to understand you in context with your field. And I think that that's very, very important because I've received really, really good advice. And I've also received, especially when I started out, um, advice that was just anti-art from people that were really well-meaning and that were you know, definitely respected in, in the recording game. And they just did not really know exactly where I wanted to go. And I think that that's like the hardest thing because you have to be edited. You have to have mentors and you have to like, you have to be ushered along into this world. And that never stops. I mean, I had a lot of pushback on Dagger Beach from the musicians. You know, there were many ideas that we were pursuing that they would just be like, this is not working. Or there was probably four songs that were, that were thrown away from those sessions where they didn't, become rarities they actually disappeared you know what i mean because <laughs> they weren't working you know what i mean really like, let's make, rare let's erase yeah. these from the earth yeah <laughs> they're very 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 rare <laughs> and and so i i i think that that and that was like my people that wasn't and i look back and i was like man they gave me great advice you know what i mean like but because they're you're you're always i mean the as part of the creative process you're always balancing that what is it the id and the ego the you know the the voice that says this is great you know and the voice yeah. that says this is horrible mm-hmm. and usually the this is horrible wins <laughs> yeah yeah uh, but sometimes you you learn to suppress that to the point where it's like right, i'm just going to wait i'm going to listen to this tomorrow and i'm going to make my decision then and and oftentimes i will listen to it tomorrow and say yeah not good <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so you, you you got you have to find you know find that balance and and I mean this is something you know you talked about uh, sort of the role of fans, the role of outside people, um, uh, producers, uh, this idea of 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 triangulating objectivity, yeah. right? Trying yeah. to figure out what is an objective view on this. Who whose voice am I going to respect and listen to? Because sometimes I I, I listen to it the next day and say nope this isn't good and accidentally it'll get on a tape to my band and the band will go i really like this thing and i'll go oh, i forgot to throw that away you know mm-hmm. and then i'll listen to it again and go try to hear it through their ears a little bit and and uh and and maybe it'll turn into something yeah uh, absolutely and you know maybe that it's like you have to you're going to have filters right but maybe the the idea and this is getting at that like that initial burst in, of creativity you don't set let's say it's like a spam filter you know you don't set your threshold very high in the beginning right so you nurture every idea however kind of unusual it it is for you to pursue you know however unnatural it is for how you feel about your own process. Sometimes those are the most interesting ideas. Mm-hmm. And then later on, the end result, I always remind myself, hey, I haven't released this song. You know, I can, I can finish this song, and I don't have to have an opinion about it. You know what I mean? Like, we see bands in the studio, they're tracking, they're doing basic tracks, and they're, they have opinions about what, what is happening. They're, they'd be like, you know, stopping the song and having talks about like, Oh, does this work in this bridge? And you'd have to remind people, like, hey, man, like, just play. You know, let's play. Let's get a version down. Let's just, let's just turn off that mode of mm-hmm. thinking right now because it's, antith- it's antithetical to moving on to the next level. And, yeah, so maybe, like, having a very, very permissive attitude towards the initial round of, like, creative production is very useful. Yeah, that the that's great or that's horrible voices each have their place but the this is going to be horrible voice is usually yes. very destructive in the creative <laughs> yeah. process absolutely and that's what we 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 have to fight that all the time in the studio mm-hmm. yeah well you're a fascinating person to listen to i feel like i could let this podcast go on for two hours here very easily but i really appreciate you taking the time to be on john of course and next time don't let me get bogged down in this analog digital stuff i do you see how like, like visceral anger i have over this stuff it's like oh it's, it's wonderful just, it's unbelievable it's just so repetitive well if you were hearing it all the time it wouldn't be so wonderful hearing um, it come out of your own mouth yeah. it was a it was a pleasure for me and i, I really appreciate you guys asking me thanks so much john thanks yeah so really much. really great Awesome. Thank you, guys. Bye.